The following resource is from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org slash give. A reading from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 3b to 5. After making purification for sins... He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good morning and welcome again to Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church. My name is Will Nettleton. I'm one of the pastors here. And let me just add my welcome to Aaron's. We are delighted to have you with us, especially if you are visiting with us or if you are new in some way, we are delighted to have you with us. Aaron will be at this side door and I'll be at the door in the back. If you're new, we'd love to meet you before you leave this morning. We are continuing our Advent study in the book of Hebrews, and we have been considering a question together, uh, a common question for this time of year, what child is this? In other words, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And we're looking at a selection of passages, mainly from the first chapter of Hebrews. And, And last week, as we began, we learned that Jesus is everything that God wants to say to us. Jesus is everything that God wants to say to us. He is the creator and sustainer of the world. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. In short, if we want to know what God is like, we look at Jesus. This morning, we are picking up in the second part of verse 3. And if the first few verses of the chapter told us something of who Jesus is from all eternity, these couple of verses tell us who he is by nature of what he did during his time on earth and after when he ascended back into heaven. And so you can see our outline there printed in your bulletin. What we'll see this morning in response to the question, who is Jesus? Jesus is, first of all, the priestly purifier. He has paid for the sins of his people with his own blood. Secondly, Jesus is the exalted ruler who sat down at the right hand of God. And we'll spend some time reflecting on what does that mean? What is the significance of the fact that he sat down? And then finally, Jesus is the royal son whose name is superior to that of even those great spiritual beings, the angels themselves, because his name is better than their name. So Jesus is the priestly purifier, the exalted ruler, and the royal son. That is our roadmap this morning. It's where we're going in the text. So let me pray for us, and we'll ask the Holy Spirit to bless our time together in God's holy word. Let us pray together. Oh Lord, your word is a lamp for our feet and a light to our path. We know that we don't live by bread alone, 
but by every word that comes from your mouth. We are your sheep, Jesus, and you have promised that you are our good shepherd, that your sheep know your voice and follow it. So I pray as we hear it this morning, would you help us to do precisely that? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. It is in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Well, one of the benefits of being in a multi-generational church like this one is that I get to learn from saints who are ahead of me in life's journey. And often that comes in the form of really beautiful spiritual wisdom. I've actually learned a ton from many of you just in the short time that I've been here. But sometimes it also just comes in the form of very practical life advice uh, that is really helpful to me. And here's some wisdom I received from one of you in a conversation this weekend, some practical life advice. Never serve red wine at a Christmas party. Never serve red wine at a Christmas party. And as this person went on to explain, perhaps this will make some sense to you, if you've got a bunch of people in your house, someone is going to bump into someone. Someone's going to put a glass down and knock it over and not tell you, and you won't discover until it's too late, and you'll never be able to get the stain out. I thought that was actually really helpful advice. Next Nettleton Family Christmas Party, it's seltzer water for everybody. No fun. You didn't want to come before. Now you definitely don't want to come. Right? There are certain stains that are harder to get out than others. There are certain stains that are harder to get out than others. The story of the Bible begins with a good God creating a world that is also good and people that are good. People, Adam and Eve, who are presented with a choice of following God's word or determining right and wrong for themselves. And you know the story. They chose the latter. And in so doing, we are told sin enters the world. Sin is that failure to desire, think, and do what we ought to do. And desiring, thinking, and doing the things that we ought not to do. One of the ways that the Bible talks about sin is as this defiling stain that pollutes the world. That pollutes people and spaces. And human beings have no hope of getting it out on our own. Indeed, that is the central tension in the scriptures after man's fall into sin. We have this God who wants to be in relationship with his people. He wants to be in their midst. But he is holy and pure, and they are not. How is the stain ever going to come out? And in the Old Testament, what we find is that God puts in place for Israel this system, a sacrificial system. God provides animals that die in the place of his people so that their sins may be covered. But part of what is happening symbolically is that the blood of the animals is also acting as a sort of cleansing agent, a detergent of sorts. I wonder if you've ever thought about this. Have you ever wondered as you're reading the Old Testament, why there are all these instructions for the priests to take blood of animals and begin sprinkling it around. They sprinkle it throughout the tabernacle, on the altar, even on the people. 
at various points. And we're told that the blood is meant to symbolically cleanse them. Now, how does that work? Because blood is another one of those stains that's pretty difficult to get out. How is it that blood would be cleansing? We find out in the Old Testament, Leviticus 17, 11, the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So blood represents life, the opposite of death. And as the priest sprinkled it around, it provided cleansing, purification. It symbolically pointed to the washing away of the stain of sin. But of course, there's a problem with this system. And that problem is that there's always more sin. And so the priests always needed more blood. What the Old Testament system pointed forward to was a need. They needed a better sacrifice. A sacrifice that could wash away sin's stain once and for all. And that is what the author of Hebrews says Jesus came to do in verse 3. Look back there with me just at the beginning of that second part. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus, we find out, is the purification that all of those Old Testament laws and sacrifices pointed to. Now, in this section of Hebrews, indeed in the whole book, the author is highlighting the superiority of Christ. That's the theme of the book, but especially this first chapter, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Hebrews was written to a Jewish audience, hence the title of it, To the Hebrews. And we know, based upon the argument that's going to follow, that the author is trying to convince these Jewish followers of Jesus not to go back. Not to go back to mere Judaism. And he begins an argument here in verse 3 that he's going to expand on significantly throughout the rest of the book. Jesus is better because the sacrifice he made on the cross is better. It is better than all of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. He says, Jesus made purification for sins. Everything that those animals' blood symbolically pointed to, Jesus has accomplished in reality and in fact. Later in the book, the author of Hebrews is going to make this even more explicit. Jesus' sacrifice is a once-for-all sacrifice to wipe away the sin of his people. Listen to what he says in chapter 10, verse 10. For we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. See, that's the difference. Jesus' sacrifice is not one that needs to be made over and over and over again. It is a once-for-all kind of sacrifice. So as we consider the question this Advent season, who is Jesus? The author of Hebrews reminds us that he is this priestly purifier who has paid for our sins with his own blood. He is the true and better sacrifice that brings lasting cleansing. The stain is brought out never to return. As the great hymn has it, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. 
What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. I wonder even how that hits you this morning. Perhaps, like me, you have struggled with some sin this last week. You come here guilty, beating yourself up again, wondering if God still has space for you. The author of Hebrews says he has made purification for your sins. Do you want to be made clean? Do you want to be made whole? The blood of Jesus Christ is available for you and for me. Hebrews tells us his blood has dealt with our sin once for all. He made purification for sin and it worked. How do we know that? Well, it's because of what the author says next in verse 3. Look back there with me. I read it already, but let me just read it again. After making purification for sins, he did what? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It is here that we learn, in addition to being a priestly purifier, that Jesus is an exalted ruler. The author of Hebrews is referencing Jesus' ascension. Right? He was crucified on the cross. He rose again from the dead on the third day. He ascended up into heaven, and now he is sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Why all this language about sitting down? Well, here again, the author of Hebrews is introducing a topic to which he will return. In fact, it's going to be again in chapter 10. Listen to these verses, verses 11 through 14 from chapter 10. If you've got your Bible, you can turn there, even as I read it for us, just a couple pages over And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The author of Hebrews returns to this image of a priest in the temple making sacrifices day after day. And this priest can never sit down because there's always more sin to be atoned for, always more blood to be poured out. But Jesus' sacrifice is different because Jesus is God. The creator and sustainer of all life has come in the flesh. He has lived a perfectly sinless life. And so when he lays down his life on the altar, he can say, as he did on the cross, it is finished. It is finished. And we know that it works because he rose from the dead and ascended and sat down. No more sacrifices needed. Mission accomplished. For those of you who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, are you living as if that is true? As if what Jesus accomplished on the cross for you is sufficient, is enough? Or do you approach obedience as if you have to add something? As if there is some work still left to be done to earn your salvation? A little over uh, 10 years ago, there was a documentary that followed around a group of uh, rookies in the National Football League as they were trying to make the cut with the Chicago Bears. 
Uh, each NFL team begins training camp before the season with more players than they'll have when they start. Right? They have 80 or 90 players when they begin training camp. After a few weeks, about 20 of those will be cut. And then after the preseason, before week one actually begins, each team has to get its roster down to 53. 53 players. So for these rookies, the big question is, can they make it through the cuts? Can they still be on the team when the season starts? And there's a scene in the documentary where the head coach is addressing them, all of these rookies who have come into training camp as it's about to begin, and his message to them is really simple. Make us put you on the team. Make us put you on the team. In other words, play so well in practice that the coaches cannot imagine cutting you. Make us put you on the team. Take the decision out of our hands. Let your performance make the decision for us. And for many of us, no matter how much you know about the gospel, how much you intellectually comprehend about the grace, the beauty of what is offered to you in Jesus Christ, there is a part of us that has this nagging suspicion that we need to make God put us on the team. We wonder if there's not something more that we need to do on our own to make sure that we're saved. And the author of Hebrews reminds us, Jesus sat down. The work is finished. His sacrifice was sufficient to cover for every one of your sins and every one of mine forever. Do you believe that this morning? That you are now free to obey, obey Jesus, not to earn his acceptance, but because you already have it. Must you obey? Of course. But why we obey has changed. Not to put us on the team. God has already offered us that in him. It is finished. Jesus sat down. But that sitting down language has other significance as well. And that brings us finally to Jesus as the royal son, the one whose name is superior even to the angels. Jesus is sitting down, represented the end of his sacrificial service. That work is done. But his sitting down at the right hand of God also points to his status as the king the royal son enthroned. Look back at verses 4 and 5 with me. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Verse 5 there, the author of Hebrews is quoting from a psalm. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. And that psalm is a song that Israel sang. It reminded them that God had made David, King David of David and Goliath fame, that he had made him and all of his descendants to be kings for a purpose, in order that they might equip the nation to fulfill the purpose for which Abraham was called all the way back in Genesis. God had called Abraham and all of his descendants to be a blessing to the nations. 
And the kingly line was supposed to help Israel fulfill that. Israel was looking for a king from the line of David that would bring blessing to the world. And the author of Hebrews, in quoting that psalm, is saying, Jesus is that king. He is great David's greater son. More than that, he is the one over whom the heavenly father says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Verses four and five talk about how Jesus is superior to the angels. And if that is interesting to you, fear not. We're gonna be talking about angels a significant amount in the next couple of weeks. Angels were something of an obsession in first century Judaism. They had a very high view of these spiritual beings, but for our purposes this morning, it's just important to know. The author's point is simply this. However great the angels are, Jesus is better. Jesus is better because his name is better. Because God calls him son. The author's point is do not miss how great Jesus is. Um, You know, this season comes around every year, Advent, and it's easy to get into the routine, to get out the same decorations that we put out, get into our same habits with our family and our friends, hear the stories again, and to allow our familiarity with it to kind of numb us, right? Familiarity breeds, if not contempt, at least indifference. And we can become numb to the greatness of Jesus and what we have in Him. And the author of Hebrews is saying, wake up. Do not miss the greatness of what you have in Jesus. Do not forget the greatness of what you have in Jesus. Um, There's this great episode of Antiques Roadshow uh, from 2001 where they're filming in Tucson and there's an older gentleman who names Ted. And Ted comes in with this older blanket. He calls it a a Navajo blanket. And as he's telling the story of it, he says his grandmother had passed it down to him. And the family legend was that they had had come by it uh, through Kit Carson, that famous Western outlaw. And so he brought it to Antiques Roadshow to see if it might be valuable. You know, it used to belong to Kit Carson, so maybe, maybe it's worth something. And as the conversation unfolds between Ted and the the man who's appraising it, he learns that the blanket actually is very valuable. But it's not because of the Kit Carson connection, which they actually are not sure they can even prove. It turns out that this blanket is what's called a ute first phase wearing blanket. The Navajo made these for ute chiefs and they were extremely valuable. Even in their own day, they were very expensive. And now there are very few still in existence. I think there are about 50 that are still around and none are in as good of condition as the one that this man brought into Antiques Roadshow. So as the appraiser is talking through it with him, he he asked Ted, Ted, do you have any sense of what we're looking at here in terms of value? And he says, "I, I don't have a clue. And the appraiser starts to smile and he looks at him And he says, Ted, are you a wealthy man? And Ted kind of is taken aback. He says, no, no, not a wealthy man. And the appraiser looks at him and says, Ted, on on a bad day, this blanket would go at auction 
for $350,000. On a good day, it will go for half a million. And just out of interest, I went and looked it up this week just to see what would it be worth now. PBS still had a file on it. It's now worth between $1.5 and $2 million for a blanket. And Ted tells the appraiser, I had no idea. And the appraiser tells him, you have a national treasure. And of course, it's the sweet moment because this, the sweet older man is just overcome with emotion. His grandparents were, were poor farmers. And he tells the appraiser, it, it was just laying there on the back of a chair. How do you imagine that Ted carried that blanket as he walked out of that appraisal? How do you think he handled that blanket going forward? Something tells me it didn't get thrown on the back of that chair when he got home. As we continue into Advent and as we prepare this morning to go to the Lord's table, the author of Hebrews is asking us the question, do you realize the treasure that you have in Jesus? Do you realize what is sitting right in front of you? He has made purification for all our sins. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father. It is finished. He is the Son of God, the King of the world, better than anything else you or I can imagine. And He longs to be in relationship with you. Do you realize the treasure that we have in Jesus? Let us not walk out of this place carrying that truth the same way. Amen. Let me pray for us as we prepare to go to the Lord's table. Father in heaven, we give you praise for the gifts of your Son. We thank you that he came was born of the Virgin Mary, conceived by the power of your Holy Spirit. He lived a perfect, obedient life to you, made under the law. That he suffered the indignities of this life, even death on a cross. And that on the third day, he rose again. That he ascended up to where you are. That he sat down at your right hand and that He is the King of the whole universe. Lord, would You open our eyes again to the beauties of this truth as we come to Your table where we are reminded again of the Lord's death. Would You remind us of the treasure that we have in Him? We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.